Now, as I said earlier, we're going to have a look at uh, the life of Elisha uh, for a few weeks in the evening service uh, in the summer. And uh, we're going to read together a passage which uh, speaks about uh, his take. He was a prophet in the Old Testament. And he takes over the mantle, as it were, from Elijah. And it's in Second Kings chapter 2 and verse 1 to 18. Kind of introductory words, maybe, uh, this evening. Second Kings chapter 2, from the beginning. Uh, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, but do not speak of it. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, but do not speak of it. And Elijah said to him, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men of the company The prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Elisha replied, You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. He picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak that had fallen from him and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, "Uh, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Look, they said, we, your servants, have fifty able men. Let them go and look for your master. Perhaps the spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down on some mountain or in some valley. No, Elisha replied, do not send him. But they persisted until... He was too ashamed to refuse. So he said, send him 
and uh, they sent 50 men who searched for three days but did not find him. When they returned to Elisha, who was staying in Jericho, he said to them, didn't I tell you not to go? Amen, and uh, may God bless to us uh, that reading from uh, the Bible. Now, just one for a short time this evening to uh, begin looking at the life of Elisha in the Old Testament and uh, hopefully glean some truth uh, for ourselves from it. And I want to do so by asking kind of four introductory questions uh, about um, the Old Testament and about Elisha and about the story and how it applies to our lives. The first question I'm going to ask is, well, why? Why do we look at the Old Testament at all? Christ isn't in the Old Testament, or not uh, overtly in the Old Testament. Oh, I may have to retract even that statement. Uh, But maybe many people think Christ isn't in the Old Testament. Uh, It's very culturally alien to us. Lots of the stories we read, maybe not so much here. Well, depends, I guess. But uh, for many, uh, the the stories of the Old Testament and the, the lifestyle and the uh, the thinking and the ethos and even the, the writing, the way it's written of the Old Testament is very alien to us. And so we struggle with it. We struggle with some of the history. We struggle with some of the culture. struggle with some of the teaching that we find in the Old Testament. Yet, three quarters of our Bible is Old Testament. If you take the Bible and put it on its side... And divide the New Testament bit and look at it. The chunk of the Old Testament is much, much bigger than the New Testament, which we spend so much time on. But it's also, even in the New Testament, lots of the New Testament is quotes from the Old Testament. It's massively quoted at different places in the New Testament. Jesus spends a great deal of his time quoting from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is Jesus' Bible. It was the Bible that Jesus used and he had no problem with it. No problem with it being God's word. No problem with it revealing God's truth. And of course, in many ways and in many places, the Old Testament is simply anticipating Christ. It's a forerunner of Jesus. It's setting the way. It's opening up the path for the coming of Jesus. Jesus himself, we're told in Luke 24, he said, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scripture concerning himself. All the scripture in that time being the Old Testament. And that was what Jesus used to unfold or unfurl the truth about himself to his disciples who knew the Old Testament but didn't understand about Jesus. Or in Acts 3, in the preaching at the early church, indeed all the prophets from Samuel on have foretold these days. So the New Testament days, the New Testament uh, hugely significant times, are prophesied, are predicted, are foretold, by uh, different places and in different ways in the Old Testament. 
And of course, it unfolds the unchanging character of God. Great deal of the Old Testament is spent uh, in affirming that there is one God. There's one God. There's one Lord. There's only one divine being. And it's nailed home again and again and again. There's not a multiplicity of gods. There's not uh, hundreds of gods. There's not any gods that you fancy, any gods of your imagination. There's one living, creative, creator God. And then blossoms in the New Testament to be the same one God, but who is also uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So the complexity of this one being is revealed in the New Testament maybe uh, very in very shadowy ways un- understood in, in that way in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament believers recognized and knew that there was this one God. And it's a God who takes us from creation and takes us and begins uh, his redemptive story towards uh, the coming of Jesus. So that's why the, the Old Testament is really important for us. I've uh, started reading. Yeah, you go through different kind of phases of what you're reading in the Bible. and uh, I may have mentioned this before. Uh, I can't remember, but I've got the, re- the uh, Bible reading app from Redeemer uh, Church in, in New York. And I'm sure it's the same as, I'm sure there's many different Bible reading apps, but it just takes a chunk from the Old Testament and a chunk from the Psalms and a little bit from the Proverbs and a bit from the New Testament every day. So you read the Bible in a year. But it's been great to go back and just read big chunks of the Old Testament. Again. It's so easy to get out of the way of reading big chunks of the Old Testament. And it's a lot of it's narrative story. So you can read big chunks. It doesn't take long. Um, and uh, it's not as kind of intense as some of the New Testament passages we read. So you get narrative stories and you get people stories and you get a God at work in different ways. And it's good to read big chunks. So uh, download the Redeemer app and you can read the Bible uh, in a year or any other uh, church app. We don't have that app yet, do we, Ali? Wake up at the top there. <laughs> no, we'll get an app and uh, we'll call St. Columbus Bible reading app for a year and you can read that one instead. So that's why we read the Old Testament because it is full uh, of uh, God preparing the way, but it's also full actually, despite what I said at the very beginning, it's full of Christ as well. And it points towards Christ and there's images of Christ and there's the flavor of Christ and there's sometimes even pre-incarnate uh, uh, appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. So what about the time of the kings here? This is, uh, if you look before, you'll see First Kings and then you'll see Second Kings. Uh, many people believe that uh, in, uh, the, originally it was just the book of Kings. It wasn't separated into First and Second Kings. Um, but uh, what is this book? Well, primarily it's just the story um, uh, of uh, God's people uh, when they had kings who ruled over them, uh, kings that they wanted. Uh, they didn't just want to be a theocracy. They didn't just want to have God as their king. They wanted to be like all the nations round about them and have their own kings, and so God gave them kings. And it's really the story of what that was like. Sometimes they had good kings, who understood the covenant, the relationship with God, and who were faithful and obedient, and the blessings that came from that. And sometimes they had terrible kings, kings who were greedy and selfish and arrogant and proud and sinful. And, and it's, a, it's kind of like a, a graph that goes up and down the story of the kings. 
uh, times when they were close to God and close to God as a people and as individuals and other times when they were really far away uh, from God where they they wanted all the grace that God could give, but they were half-hearted, they were faithless, they were idolatrous. And this book, these books would have been written much later on in the stories themselves, probably at the early point when Israel and Judah was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And it's as if this is written, and they look back, probably written, although we're not told directly, written by Jeremiah. And it was looking back on these days and saying, look, This is what it was like for you. They're almost saying because they've been taken from their promised land, they've been taken into uh, captivity, and it's almost like they're saying, right, okay, where did we go wrong? What happened? Why was it such a disaster? Why have we not enjoyed God's blessings as he promised? And and why haven't we remained in this promised land that he gave us? And it shows that they were hugely, there was times when they were hugely deluded Uh, by trying to live without God and trying to worship false gods and trying to worship uh, idols that were about, you know, the story in Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18 uh, of the prophets of Baal. And there was this time of drought. And uh, so Elijah challenged uh, the prophets of Baal to pray to their God to bring about rain. And remember, Baal was this God who was the God of storms and the God of rain and the God of fertility. And they tried so hard to pray to these gods, but nothing happened. And it's a very dramatic story, of course, uh, because it, it revealed that these people, these gods in whom they trusted were unable to save them. A clear message that came through again and again. Uh, And then God, uh, through Elijah, answered uh, the prayers for rain and revealed himself to be both the redeeming God and the saving God. And even in these stories for us, there's the same reality for us of uh, encouragements and warnings when we choose to uh, turn our backs on God as believers and live without him and uh, rejecting his love and rejecting his grace and saying we don't know him, the principles are very much the same for ourselves. That we see that we can often make shipwreck of our lives short term. That we can uh, make a mess of things because we choose to ignore the wisdom and the grace and the power and the strength and the guidance and the love of God. And we go our own ways. And we think, well, I know better than God. And I don't need to pray to God. And I don't need his grace in my heart. And I'll just sort things out myself. And Kings is really a story of just the kind of tangled up mess that people get into when they ignore God. And it's an encouragement to us not to go down that same road of autonomy and self-rule in our lives. But to remind ourselves that our Lord and our God as a sovereign God is a great God. And he wants us to be dependent on him, and he wants us to trust him. So, uh, the question, what about the, why the Old Testament, or what about the time of the kings? And then what about the prophets themselves? There was lots of different prophets, and lots of the books of the Bible in the Old Testament are uh, books named after the prophets of God. Well, they were God's messengers in the Old Testament. Uh, there was a succession of prophets who brought Uh, God's word and God's truth to the people. They were witnesses of God. And they were there to lead the people, to encourage them, to teach them, to warn them. 
uh, to foretell. We often think of prophets simply as those who foretold the future. And that was an element of what they were involved in, but it wasn't by far wasn't the, the greatest part of their work. Their work was simply to, uh, they were anointed by God and by the Spirit of God, and uh, they uh, brought God's message to the people before there was a finished Bible, before there was the completed scripture, and obviously before uh, Jesus had come. So they were leaders among the people, and they uh, had message uh, to bring from God. And very much they were, nearly well, all the prophets were pointing forward. You know, the, these prophets in Israel were pointing forward, and they were pointing forward to Jesus Christ. In many different ways, they were pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Uh, no, no, there's different, different kinds of parallels, and uh, there's obviously a parallel between Elijah and uh, between, say, John the Baptist, uh, the forerunner of Christ. Um, Jesus says in Matthew eleven fourteen, if you're willing to accept it, John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. So there's a link between Elijah uh, that old, great Old Testament prophet, and John the Baptist, the last of the great Old Testament prophets, who was the forerunner of Jesus. And uh, also in Malachi 4, Malachi himself, being the last of the Old Testament prophets, says, he sees I will send you Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So there was this, this parallel between Elijah and John the Baptist. And there's a lot of commentators would parallel Elijah, John the Baptist, and Elisha with Jesus that Elisha was a very Christ-like character. He received a double portion of God's spirit. Uh, as we read in this passage, we'll say a little bit more about that later. He was a, a kind of graceful prophet. Elijah was, was much more like John the Baptist. He was kind of wild and mental in a good way and uh, kind of tough and strong. But Elisha was much, much more like Christ. There was more, a kind of more graciousness about him and uh, there was more like the still small voice of God uh, being spoken through him. And uh, he, of course, uh, uh, performed many miracles. And we'll look at some of that in subsequent weeks, uh, similar in many ways to Jesus. So there's this sense in which these guys were, were pointing forward uh, to the great prophet, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and each of them in their own way uh, were bringing part of that character uh, to bear on him. And they were always they were pointing forward, not just to the coming of Christ, which they prophesied and predicted, not just in their character, but in their teaching, but they were pointing forward to a day when all believers would be like them, when it wouldn't just be one or two believers who would have this special kind of uh, presence of God in their lives, but when all believers would be like them in numbers, uh, Chapter 11, Moses is kind of making a prayerful wish, and he says, I wish that all God's people uh, were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit in them. And that's a kind of prophetic wish which Joel uh, uh, brings to the fore in, in his prophecy where he says, and afterwards I will pour my spirit on all people, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in these days, which is, of course, fulfilled at Pentecost in the New Testament church, where all of God's people become prophets. Because all of us are given the Holy Spirit and not just anointed for kind of special times of uh, teaching or uh, 
prophecy, but when we are indwelt by the Spirit. So there's this great pointing forward that we have what they had in temporary kind of form, which only one or two of them had. We have this great reality as believers who have come to know Jesus Christ, who have moved from death to life spiritually, which we were looking at briefly this morning. And we have the power of a new life. And we have a message like the prophets. We have uh, and are to be witnesses for Jesus Christ in the way that they were. And uh, that's a great thing. There's this kind of parallel between their proclamation and their uh, role in uh, pointing people to, to God that we have in our own lives as believers, a great, significant, and important uh, role as prophets of God. But what about Elisha uh, here in this story? Well, he was called by God. He was called to serve God. And uh, uh, if you turn back to First Kings chapter 19, you get that link between uh, Elijah and Elisha in First Kings 19. In verse 19, we're told, Elijah went up from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And he was plowing 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my mother and father. Say goodbye, he said, then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah said. What have I done to you? And so Elisha left him and went back. And he took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment and took the meat and gave it to the people in there. Then he set out to follow Elijah, became one of his attendants. So he was, uh, at this point, going to be called uh, to serve and to be a follow-on prophet uh, from Elisha, uh, from Elijah. And he had this special role uh, calling him uh, where he was set apart uh, to that role. And... Uh, that, I simply want to say that that's a very simple calling that he's uh, uh, in symbolic form that the mantle is thrown over him and he knows that that is uh, uh, the work of God and Elijah is the prophet of God and there's significance in that. Um, but, but each of us uh, have also a calling from God. We are called to follow Jesus Christ. That's our calling. Uh, we are called, we are set apart this morning, we looked at Saul, who became Paul, and uh, when Ananias said to him, get up, be baptized, call the name of the Lord, there was a sense of calling, there was a sense of being led, there was a sense of significance that you have a role to play. And uh, the same uh, authority that called uh, Saul and called Elisha, and there's clear sovereign authority in these callings is the same call that is on your life and on my life as Christians. You know, sometimes uh, we feel that our, our following Christ is, well, we're doing God a favor. It's great, isn't it? Amazing that God has me to follow him. I'm such a great person, and it's wonderful that I'm doing that. Um, and we're looking for God to jump through our hoops and really do what we want in our lives but until we are people who have been at the cross of Jesus and who recognize both his grace, which is in many ways easy for us to talk about, but also his sovereignty and his authority, then we will not have that sense of duty, privilege, 
love, joy, but also duty to follow this great God. Uh, When he calls, we don't really have the option of ignoring him or of choosing not to follow or not to serve him. And uh, we look for in our own lives that sense of the significance and the authority and uh, the sovereignty of God calling us to serve him where we are. Not necessarily, in this, obviously, in the same way as Elijah, uh, Elisha, being called to, to follow uh, Elijah uh, uh, kind of in very physical ways and leaving his home. But we are called, whatever you're called to, to serve, you're, you have a calling of God, whether it's in university, whether it's in school, whether it's uh, in the workplace, whether it's in your neighborhood or your home. God has called you to that work. He's called you to serve him there. He's called you to be an ambassador for him there. And uh, you all have that calling. Uh, and I have a calling. And uh, uh, we, we don't do God a favor. We follow and serve him because of his grace and his love. And uh, we recognize his sovereignty and his authority. And Elisha, in being called, followed and responded in obedience to that call. He gave his wholehearted commitment to that. And again, can I just stress, uh, and I'm just applying uh, this very quickly into our own lives, into our own situations, that same calling and that same commitment is what Jesus Christ asks for us in uh, Luke uh, chapter 9 and verse 22. Um, Jesus speaks about the cost of following him. And he says, you know, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily. Daily, he says. Is it maybe for us something we think of as uh, once in a while or monthly, uh, weekly, biannually? Uh, now and again, uh, when something particularly needy comes around, we take up our cross or, or we follow him. But he says to us, you know, that we take up our cross daily and follow him. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake uh, will find it. What is good is it for a man to gain the whole wide world and that forfeit or lose his very soul? And then a great, that's a great gospel message, isn't it? Of wholehearted commitment. Elijah, real, Elisha realized that in giving himself to God and following God and being prophet, his whole old life had gone. And he followed and uh, went in this new direction. And, and that's very much the same for us in our lives that uh, uh, the prophets had this wholehearted devotion. They preached that, they lived that, and they tried to example that to uh, the people to a greater or lesser degree, successful or otherwise. But it's important for us that we remember and recognize and battle with the mental attitude which uh, always veers back towards self-rule and autonomy and love of sin. That we want to be still in control. We want to do things our way. That we don't really want to be wholehearted and committed to him. Uh, We can't be in two camps. We can't have uh, a foot in both camps. We can't have two gods And that was what the Old Testament people struggled with so much. They struggled with the exclusivity of the living God and of his loving and gracious demands on them. 
and uh, the responsibility to deny all others. And yet this love of which uh, we are, uh, have taken hold of is a preeminent love for us. And uh, we need to recognize that. It was over, and obviously, as mentioned this morning, at St. Andrew's on Friday at Matt and George's wedding. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, no, uh, there's no kind of half-hearted vows that you do at a wedding. You can't sort of say, okay, well, I'll vow to, to love you some of the time. Uh, I'll be your faithful, exclusive husband or wife when you're around. Uh, you know, it'll not happen when we're on holiday or things like that. You know, you can't do it that way. The, the vows that we take at a wedding are pretty exclusive vows. They're lifelong. They're f- about faithfulness that you're denying all others. And that's just in the human relationship of love. And, uh, uh, and that's how it has to be. And so it is in a real... But, but, a million times more in a relationship with Jesus that there's this great sense of wholehearted commitment. The Bible often speaks about complacency or mediocrity or lukewarmness. And uh, it's a, a horrible thing, isn't it, to be a Christian living in the shadow lands, living far from uh, Jesus and uh, not embracing him, but being a stranger to him living in the spiritual red light district, prostituting ourselves and not knowing and and sharing his uh, love and his grace. Wholehearted commitment. But also I think, uh, briefly, and just as we we draw it to a close, you see with Elisha, there's such a genuine humanity about him, particularly in this little passage where the mantle is being passed on between Elijah and and Elisha, there's, it's very real and very tender, the student and the teacher. And the student knows that the teacher is about to go the way of the world. He's about to be taken from him. Death was near. And that was, that was hurtful. Uh, he didn't want to talk about it. You know, when the different guys said, Do you know that you know, the Lord's going to take Elijah from you? He said, I know, I know, don't talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about death. I don't want to talk about the separation. There's this kind of emotional uh, uh, battle that he's going through, but he, he knows that Elijah, is, his father, as it were, is going to be taken from him. And yet uh, there's a sense in which death, and, and I know Elisha's, Elijah's death is kind of unusual and, and unique in, in biblical terms, but nonetheless there was that se- separation. And uh, there's a great humanity about Elisha here that he doesn't want that to happen and uh, let's never forget that let's never forget the humanity of belonging um, to this world in which we live I just find it weird when Christians uh, kind of celebrate death which maybe sometimes they do I think death is a defeated enemy, undoubtedly for the Christian. And we don't mourn as those without hope. But it's still an enemy. It's still the antithesis of all that uh, we want and, and all that our very being uh, gravitates towards. It's, it's not the same. It's not what we want. Christ wept when he saw the effects of death and separation when he went to his friend's uh, home and Lazarus had died. and 
It's not right for us as Christians to have this kind of stoic, unnatural acceptance of death. Just because we know we can explain it spiritually and because we understand the spiritual dynamics and the, the, the reality behind it doesn't mean that we still don't recoil from it. That our very body, every uh, fiber of our beings uh, resists the reality of death. Not because we don't want to be with Jesus. You know, yes, for us to live as Christ and to die as gain. We know these truths, but uh, the reality is that death remains for us that valley of the shadow which we need to walk through, which is still, uh, even though it's an enemy, uh, a defeated enemy, it remains an enemy. And in our humanity, let us remember that, particularly as we mourn and grieve along with others, that we have an empathy and a sympathy, and we don't make light of that or uh, act in a way that is, is less than human. And uh, lastly, I think we also see uh, the great, and I haven't really gone into the character much here of, of Elisha, but his great request in verse 9, when they're about to part, when they crossed Elijah, said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? And uh, he says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. It's a tremendous prayer, tremendous request that he makes. He knows that there's this uh, passing on uh, of, uh, of, of, of work uh, between the prophets. He, he recognizes and sees and knows that uh, they were God's messengers and the, uh, there was a continuation of their work on and on. And uh, he knows that although Elijah, this great, great prophet of God, is about to go, that the work must go on. And so he makes a fantastic prayer uh, that reveals his humility and also his sense of understanding of what is important, a double portion of the Spirit of God in his life. And that's, that's, there's lots of different angles to that, but one of the great things is that he recognized success, the importance of succession. The importance of the work being what's important, not just the individual, you know. And it's not about the individual, it's about God passing on the blessing and uh, the work carrying on. And that's a great thing. Uh, what, what I, one of the things I want to teach again and again to young guys coming into the ministry uh, is the importance of basically what they're doing is they want to work in a congregation, work themselves out of a job because they're working to pass on the work to the next person. It's not about them. It's not their work. It's not, they're not building up anything around their personality. It's simply moving on uh, God's work. They're doing God's work for a season. Then they'll be taken off the scene of time, and someone else will do it. And it'll do fine without them, and it'll do fine without us. And that's the great thing. He wanted that double portion. I remember when, um, when I was to be ordained, in my first congregation in Roskin, which was in 1991, for some of the people here were born. Uh, my dad at that time was just retired as a minister. He'd been the minister here in the congregation, some of you will know. But he was, he was, unable, to, uh, he was unable to be at my ordination. Uh, he was in the area, uh, he was in the home of friends, but he was laid up in bed because at that time he had a very bad back. And he wasn't able to make the, indu the ordination induction. He actually ended up being well enough to preach uh, from a bar stool. Not in a bar. Uh, but from a bar stool in the pulpit. He wasn't fit enough to stand. 
but he could sit. So he was in a kind of high stool preaching on the Sunday. But he wasn't able to be there on the Friday. But he said that to me when I went to visit him uh, before the ordination. He said, you know, I want you to have a double portion of God's Spirit. (laughs) Because he understood it wasn't about him and it wasn't about me. It was about God blessing us and giving us what we needed for the next portion of the ta- for the next portion of the work, and and that's such a great thing for us to pray for, isn't it? It's a recognition that we don't live in the past. It's a recognition that we uh, are not just happy with what we've got. It's a recognition uh, of what need there is in our lives uh, for more of God's blessing and God's spirit. We can't be content with mediocrity. We can't be content just with kind of half-empty churches. We can't be content with habitual Christianity, that we're looking for a double portion of God's spirit uh, so that we will have more. You know, it's not, it's not that God is me- miserly or meager with what he gives, but he looks for us to have a hunger to want more and to want more of his spirit and to grow and to hunger and to, to develop and to thirst. And that's my prayer. And I want you to make that your prayer. I can't force you to have that as your prayer, but I want you to make that your prayer, that you will have a double portion of God's spirit in your life. Maybe a double portion from your parents or a double portion from uh, your minister, a double portion uh, th- that you've had up to this point. And it fills you with this great sense of uh, being able to serve God and do God's will because he has promised to resource us. He's promised to fill us. He's promised that it's not in our own strength. It's his work. We needn't be afraid that somehow we're holding the banner on our own, that it's his work. And uh, we are simply on the scene for a few moments, uh, but he wants us to be blessed and he wants us to be useful and used wherever we are whatever you're doing in whatever workplace you're in, that you will serve him and follow him and love him and uh, that you will find Christ to be the greatest of saviors. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, bless, we pray, our thoughts around your word and help us to know and love you uh, better and better. May we learn from the example of the prayers and the obedience and the commitment of uh, Elisha and the life that he led, and uh, learn for ourselves the principles and the truths that will apply to our situation. We do pray, Lord God, for a double portion of your spirit in this church, in this congregation, you pour out your spirit on us, that our lives and our hearts wouldn't be so kind of jam-packed, full of other things that uh, are, are um, uh, wrestling with or, or, or battling in our hearts for supremacy, that there's no room for the Spirit, that we would not be uh, people whose hearts are divided or whose hearts are cold or disinterested, but we would be wholehearted and that we would be rooting out sin and selfishness and idolatry and greed and bitterness and pride, selfishness and envy and gossiping and drunkenness and all these things that uh, public and private that sometimes uh, just uh, atrophy our hearts and cause us uh, to grow cold and not to know and experience that love which you have for us and that power and that grace and uh, that glory uh, that you want your children to have. And may we then know that double portion of your spirit in our lives and our hearts. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen.